I mean, what has NATO gotten us? What has NATO gotten us other than a war that we can't win, that we pretend that we can win, and by pretending that we can win it, and pretending that we can fight the Russians, and that we can use Ukraine to destroy Russia and dismantle Russia, break it up into a million different pieces, and have our, our uh, another unipolar moment where we can then turn our sights onto China and then do the same to China, and then we'll be the undisputed superpower for the, the rest of eternity. If, <laughs> yeah, I guess saying that out loud makes it even crazier than it, it sounds in my head when I think about how crazy these people are for believing this nonsense. But what has NATO gotten us other than trouble? It's gotten us nothing. And when we look at this war in Ukraine in particular, the trouble it's gotten us is that we've run out of weapons. We, us, we are out. We're all out. There's nothing left for sale. Granted, we weren't selling anything to begin with, unfortunately. Now every piece of equipment that has to be replaced with either the same thing or something new has to be replaced on the taxpayer's dime because nobody had... Nobody had the foresight. Nobody had the nobody. Nobody had enough scruples to say, hmm, maybe we should make the Ukrainians pay for the equipment that we're giving them, so that we we can afford the replacements without fleecing the American population for even more money. But no, no, that wasn't on the agenda. And now, here we are. We're out. There's nothing left to give. There's nothing left to give. Like. A few, I say a few, it's really a few days ago, but I almost said a few weeks ago. When it came out that we were giving cluster munitions to Ukraine, which is a literal war crime because they're indiscriminate, indiscriminate bombs. A lot of them are duds, so they end up sitting there and going off when someone touches them. And it's what it's usually civilians who suffer the most from the use of cluster munitions, not the militaries. We're providing Ukraine with cluster munitions now. As if depleted uranium wasn't bad enough, we're supplying them with cluster munitions now. As if using our military intelligence for literal state-backed terrorism, I thought we were at war with terrorism. I thought I thought we were fighting a war, the war on terror. But here we are with Ukraine supporting Nazis, terrorists, nuclear terrorists. It it just never ends. It just never the insanity just never ends. It really does. And not only are we backing Nazis, who are terrorists, nuclear terrorists, who also were also backing them by committing war crimes of giving them depleted uranium shells and cluster bombs. It, it just never ends. But get this, the reason we're giving them these cluster bombs, which perhaps is even worse, it's, it's even worse to know the reason, but I'll, I'll get... Here's the reason, because Biden in a CNN interview, uh, he admits that the U.S. is low on 155 millimeter artillery shells. He admits that in the interview and in, in, a, in a passing comment when he was walking by a reporter who asked him why he was giving cluster bombs to Ukraine. He said, 
we're low on our top. We're getting low. And he, he says the reason for us supplying Ukraine with cluster munitions, uh, and he accuses Russia of using cluster bombs first, which is a complete non-argument. Why are you the supposed leader of the free world committing a war crime? Oh, it's because we're running low on 155 millimeter artillery shots. Knowing the reason why we're doing it somehow makes it worse. How, how does it make it worse? Because we've hit rock bottom and we're still going. That, that's, that's the first thing to notice. We're low on artillery shells, so we're going to start giving them cluster bombs as if that was better. We're, we ran low on artillery shells, so our only option in the eyes of these people is to just commit a war crime. And give them cluster bombs. Oh, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> that that's your plan. That's your strategy. So that that's the the first thing that makes it worse. But the second thing, the second part about knowing the reason why makes this makes the decision even worse is because think about what that means. We ran out of artillery shells, and instead of saying, "Look, we have nothing left to give Ukraine." It's time to end this. We're going to stop. We're going to, we didn't stop. We ran out of artillery shells. And then these people decide that they would rather give them cluster bombs than to stop giving them weapons. When they've run out, they literally ran out of our weapons. These are our weapons. These are our artillery shells. What they blew through giving all of it to Ukraine they spent it all on nothing just for them to still lose the war they gave away our weapons that are supposed to be used by our military for our nation's defense in the event that our nation has to fight a war they gave all of that away and it still wasn't enough for them now they want to give away some other piece of our stockpile of weapons and they're going to commit a war crime in the process. That's like that's like me emptying out your bank account, uh, emptying out your your checking account, right? And after I spent all of your money, I then went and started emptying out your savings account and your retirement account and your 401 and your investing account and your 401k. Th that's the equivalent of what they've chosen to do here. Oh no. We, we've emptied out your bank, your, your savings account, so now we have to access your social security and use the money there. No, no, stop. Leave it alone. Leave it the fuck alone. It's not yours. This isn't, some, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing with that. But they would rather do that than to simply say it's time to stop. They would rather commit a war crime than to say, all right, it's time, it's time to talk with the Russians. And Scott Ritter brings it up uh, on numerous occasions. What happens after the war? What happens after the war? Because there's still going to be a Russia on the other side of this. How are you going to interact with Russia after the war if you're all in on Russia's destruction? The, these... Let's pretend that climate change is a key issue that everyone needs to be working together on. How are you going to work with the Russians on climate change 
if you were two seconds ago all in on the destruction of the Russian state and the, the, the murder of the Russian people by way of literal Nazis in Ukraine, weaponizing Russia's neighbor against it. And you funded and armed those people to the bitter end and the Russians had to march all the way to Lviv to put it down. How do you speak to them after that? You don't, you can't, w what's there to say? Now you're gonna have this militarized, very well-armed Russia just chilling out in Eastern Europe who can do whatever the fuck it wants with impunity. You can't stop that. You gave away all your weapons to Ukraine. And a lot of it's already ended up in Russian hands and a lot more of it's gonna end up in Russian hands when the war is over. It's gonna be just like Afghanistan where you see the rows upon rows upon rows of equipment left behind, captured by the very people that that equipment was supposed to be fine. We're out, we're all out. And this, this is the result of deindustrialization. We can't produce artillery shells anymore. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that we're producing zero. I mean that we're producing not even a day's worth of artillery. Uh, I mentioned earlier on that Alexander of the Duran he noted that uh, uh, there was a brief yet very substantial increase in Ukraine's artillery fire, uh, their their rate of fire when the offensive began. Uh, this, of course, following the necessary injection of artillery shells, which was provided largely by the United States. Ukraine was able to, for a few weeks, get their fire rate up to the twenty to 25,000 shells a day range, which is a massive increase from what they were at down in the depths in March, when that leaked Pentagon document came out, and we saw they had 10,000 rounds barely in stock, and they were firing 1,000 a day. I think that was the worst moment in Ukraine's uh, war effort. They got a massive injection of shells and artillery for this offensive, and for the opening days, they were able to pump it up to twenty to 25,000. They were able to be competitive with the Russians, uh, well competitive with what the Russians had last summer because the Russians have been at a consistent 20 to 40,000 throughout the course of this war. And of course they bumped it up to the 40 to 50,000 range when the Ukrainians began their offensive, which is part of the reason why it's gone nowhere. The Russians just have them outgunned chronically. There's nothing Ukraine can do about it. And because their supply of shells is so limited and so finite, and the Russians are actually producing shells, the Russians can afford this. The Ukrainians can't. And Alexander, even having noted that very large increase, he believes that the Ukrainian fire rate has now, as of now, fallen back down to the six to 9,000 shells a day range. So essentially it's fallen back to what it was around the beginning of this year, uh, January, February. Obviously, not, not March. Ooh, not March. Uh, that's not good. That is a massive fall-off. That, that's a fall-off worse than when Ukraine took its first nosedive in terms of its fire rate. It, that, that's a terrible fall-off. To go from twenty to 25,000 shells a day to less than 10,000 a day, we saw this fall-off over the course of 
March, or at the very least, the information leaked out to us uh, or in a way that it looked like they were just losing their fire rate week by week and down eventually came down to a thousand a day. They might end up back down at a thousand a day at this rate with nothing to show for it. Interestingly enough, the Legitimy, a Ukrainian publication, Legitimy, published an article saying that General Valery Zeluzhny, who has, who's back on the scene, apparently, uh, after a, a pretty nice hiatus, he, he has apparently, allegedly, told Zelensky that Ukraine can only sustain offensive operations for 200 days. Because after which, and this is Zeluzhny saying this, after which Ukraine will run out of ammunition. And if Ukraine is, if their their fire rate of artillery is uh, on par with what Alexander is putting up here, and that fall off is there and continues, Zeluzhny might just be right. Especially when you consider that there's, there's nothing left for the the United States, NATO, but United States, nothing left, there's nothing left for us to give. There's no more injections coming. We don't have, there, there's nowhere else for us to tap for these, there's no other um, reservoirs of artillery that we can tap. We've got it, it all. There's nothing left. And yet the war still goes on because these people hate Russia more than they value the lives of the Ukrainians. And while I myself don't necessarily have any affinity or affiliation with the Ukrainians, I'm not advocating for them to die, especially in a war that they can't win. If they're going to fight a war they can't win, they can fight that war on their own time and on their own dime. But these people running my government would rather sacrifice my life for Ukraine's unwinnable war. And they all know it's unwinnable. But they keep doubling down. It's, it's a really bad situation. And I believe that it will end, like I said earlier, just a few moments ago, with the NATO summit, guaranteeing this situation, this, this conundrum we found ourselves in, is going to result, it's going to end in the destruction of the Ukrainian state. Every week that goes by, I'm just more convinced that's how this is going to end. If Ukraine is not allowed to make peace because NATO just doesn't want peace, they want war, they want to destroy Russia, but they can't get it, and they're too immature to admit that they are not going to be able to get what they want, and they would rather just continue fighting Russia, then that means that the only way this ends is through essentially a complete Russian occupation of Ukraine. We'll see exactly how Ukraine gets partitioned, but I don't see a situation where Ukraine gets to keep even half of its landmass. Now, perhaps they will. I just see circumstance forcing Russia to go for the gold. To go for the gold. It's because what else do they have? What else? What else do they have? If Ukraine's not going to negotiate, NATO doesn't want to negotiate. They, they turned down the peace treaty. You saw those treaties, those draft treaties the Russians showed off with the Ukrainians having initialed it. And then Ukraine turns their back on it. Ukraine turned their back on Minsk 2. They turned their back on Minsk 1. 
they they turn they turn their back on the the wheat the grain deal the grain uh on the oh my goodness I'm tripping over my words they use the ports the the safe harbor to bring to smuggle weapons into Ukraine to fight Russia they weren't supposed to do that the Ukrainians just can't honor a treaty to save their life at least that's the Russian perspective and if the Ukrainians can't be trusted to honor a treaty and NATO nobody in NATO is willing to force them to honor the treaty well then the obvious solution is that there just can't be a, a Ukraine to begin with and if there is going to be a Ukraine it's going to be a very very small state in Europe that can't that physically cannot harm Russia in whatever way shape and form that's how I see this ending Ukraine's ability to fight is falling off of a cliff because of these ridiculous losses that they are suffering and we we enabled this with all the weapons and, and money and ammunition and aid that we've given them under the, the the rather false assumption that we were being humanitarian with all this aid. We were helping Ukraine. Well, let's say it, a lot of people believe that. But the, the functional result of that is that we prolonged a war that didn't need to happen to begin with and that didn't need to last as long as it did. Because not only could we have made, not only could we have forced the Ukrainians to honor their end of the deal with Minsk II and ended this before it began, not only could we have not deliberately sabotaged the peace that was being worked out, that was almost worked out between Russia and Ukraine uh, back in March and April of 2022, when, a month after the war began. We sabotage that piece. And by giving them, just handing out weapons and money like candy, not only have we guaranteed the destruction of Ukraine, but now we've guaranteed that we are broke as a joke because we're all out and there's nothing left to give. There is no more face to save. There's going to be only humiliation. And I'm not entirely sure that I trust the response of the people in charge with, you know, to that humiliation. They really don't like being embarrassed, but they're about to get embarrassed by the Russians winning completely. I believe a victory that is going to be so complete, Russia will be unchallenged in Europe for the rest of this century or something close to that. And we are going to be sitting here with no artillery talking about how we're going to defend Taiwan from, from China. It's, it's a very interesting, dangerous and peculiar situation. We find ourselves in, uh, and we can only hope that it doesn't go South. We can only hope, but that my lovely, lovely listeners is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. The U.S. is out of ammo. Uh, We'll see what happens. But whatever happens, we'll have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.